The Libyan Prime Minister has been released after he was taken, so who is running Libya? The boss at MI5 warns secrets should stay secret. President Karzai says NATO's been bad for Afghanistan. The leader of the Pakistani Taliban speaks out and keeping British soldiers clean, fit and healthy. The Libyan government says Prime Minister al-Zaden has been liberated hours after he was seized by gunmen. Mr Zaden was taken by armed men from the hotel where he lives in the capital, Tripoli. It's two years since Colonel Gaddafi was killed in Libya, but the democratically elected government seems unable to govern. So, is the country still in revolution? Oliver Miles, former ambassador to Libya, joins us now along with BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Oliver Miles, first First of all, what's your take on what's been going on? It's not the first time something like this has happened. Of course, it's outrageous when the Prime Minister's involved, uh, but it's been equally outrageous. There have been incidents when, for example, Tripoli's water supply was cut off, which is a very serious matter, and oil exports were also interrupted. And in all these cases, the problem is fundamentally the same. Ever since the revolution two years ago, there are uh, so-called militias, that is to say, young men who took up arms to fight Gaddafi and uh, won and believe that they deserve well of their country and it's still not been possible to incorporate them into the state either to bring them into the army or the uh, police or to find them civilian jobs and so on and they're getting pretty discontented. They're not in rebellion but nor are they under the authority of the state. Christopher, who abducted the Prime Minister and why was he let go? In the council there is a relatively new... Uh, operations organization it's roughly called the revolution operations room and uh, it comes under the support of the of, of the of the council chairman but also of the president they decided and they're a bunch of hotheads some would some would call them but they decided uh, that the prime minister's involvement in the american lifting of uh, al libby was supposed to be tied up with al-Qaeda. They decided this was bad news and they were going to lift him, i.e. the the Prime Minister. There is the fundament of of the whole thing. Problem. President says, what the heck are you doing? Uh, And the reason that Mr. Mr. Uh, Zaiden is is now out is the President lent on these guys and says, listen, I'm in charge and I could even disband you if I wanted to. We need him back in. So, um, Oliver, who is in charge in Libya? Is it the president? Is it working that way? No, I don't think it's becoming a presidential system, if that's what you mean. The trouble is, um, I suppose you could say there's no system. The unique thing about Libya is that uh, Gaddafi, who was in some respects like other tyrants in the the Middle East and other parts of the world, was uh, particularly um, difficult in that he destroyed all the institutions in Libya. He, He destroyed the army, he destroyed the police, he destroyed the, the mosque, uh, he destroyed um, uh, all, all forms of civil society. So when they had the, the revolution, it's quite remarkable that they managed to get themselves together to organise an election, which everybody accepted was, was well done. Uh, it produced uh, a congress, 
um, it, there's been two tra- two peaceful transfers of power since um, since the, the the revolution, and the present prime minister therefore has much better democratic credentials than I think almost any other leader in the Middle East. But he hasn't got the power because these militias remain quasi-independent. Christopher, what do these militias actually want? Um, In different cases, they want, for example, a different type of state. They want control, and they also want their own authority. And as Oliver says, you get a whole bunch of people fighting against Gaddafi, they topple Gaddafi, they all shoot up in the air, and they say, OK, now what do we do? And they all want authority. And we're talking about 14, maybe 15 different groups. Now, if you take the Revolutionary Operations Room, which the people that lifted the Prime Minister, they set themselves up as a very powerful organisation along with something that we would call the CID. And that's what they want. They want authority. They've got dissatisfaction. I don't know. I mean, Oliver, when you think about it, I mean, how big is Libya? It is the most impossible place at the moment with the present system to govern, surely, especially in the East. And then we start getting talking about oil. We start getting uh, disappointments because when people have a revolution, what do they think is going to happen? Next morning, it's all going to be good. It could, take a de- it could take a decade to resolve some of the anxieties of these people. Is that how you see it, Oliver? Perhaps a- a 10 years to get any stability in Libya? No, I don't, actually. I think that they're probably coming to a crisis point when either they really will become a failed state, and I don't personally expect that to happen, but it may, uh, or they will, they will be start to lift their noses above the, above the, 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 the water. And the, the reason I think that is that you have to remember they have one big asset that many other governments don't have, which is plenty of money. And I think, although I would agree with, uh, with Christopher's analysis of what the, the militias are about, to some extent, I think he, what he left out is an important element, which is that the people actually in these militias have a claim on the state. They feel they've done something for Libya and they think Libya should do something for them. And if they could be offered jobs and homes and a prospect of a decent place in society, uh, a bit of dignity and so on, I think that the, the problem would be eased. And that's the, 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 the way that the... the government should be going, but it's very, very difficult. I, when I was there last year, I heard some very imaginative ideas um, being aired in the Ministry of Labour about um, not just finding people jobs, but finding people a place in society. The trouble is all that needs needs funding, it needs money, and the money is only slowly trickling through. Christopher. A quick thought for this, uh, which concerns the British. Next year, we are supposed to be starting to train the Libyan army in the United Kingdom near Indeed. Cambridge. And, and do, do these events actually change anything for that plan? I do don't think? think they change it, but it makes it far more difficult to judge who is going to come, what sort of training and mm. the extent of the training and how it go on. But the British are, are committed to this. When Prime Minister Cameron went there, he said the Libyan people have liberated themselves. He also said, I think rather smartly, uh, it's up now to the Libyans to sort it themselves. In other words, the British don't want to get involved in this. Oliver? Well, I agree with that, and I think he was quite right, and I hope he sticks to it. Uh, And it isn't only the British either. I think that the the Americans and the French and the Italians may be a little bit more tempted than we are to get involved. But I think the Libyans have got to solve these problems for themselves. The idea that they'll somehow be solved by somebody else is nonsense, and that that should be absolutely clear. I'm glad that that, uh, our Prime Minister made that point so clearly at the end of the military operations a couple of years ago. All right. Oliver Miles, former ambassador to Libya, thank you very much for your time today. 
The work of the security services is carried out under a veil of secrecy, but every once in a while we're given what's meant to feel like a glimpse beneath that veil. This week, the new Director General of MI5, Andrew Parker, has given his first public speech. Six months into the job, he took to the podium at the Royal United Services Institute to warn of thousands of people in Britain active in support of terrorism. He also had both warnings about the need for surveillance of digital communications and for the scale of that to be kept secret. Professor Michael Clark hosted the event. We had two messages that, that uh, overlapped, really. One was that the threat continues at about the same tempo, but, com- but changes all the time, transforms itself. And then the related message was that if the, tr- the threat is transforming itself, then we in the security services have to have access to the sort of communications that we need. And re- really what he's saying, what the security services say, is that the criminals and the terrorists are using new technologies, and we, the security services, are prevented from using new technologies by our old legislation. So we need to update the legislation. That was really the message. Professor Michael Clark there. Well, our reporter James Hurst has been looking at this feature. Hello, James. What stands out to you? Um, This figure of of, of thousands, several thousand people are active in some way in support of terrorism. He said it's something that his predecessors have said several different times, but what he then goes on to say is, just because uh, MI5 is aware of somebody doesn't mean they know everything about that person and can continually monitor every aspect of their life. He He says, the idea that we can or would want to operate intensive scrutiny of thousands is fanciful. Knowing of an individual does not equate to knowing everything about them. Now, this then feeds into this other message of his, and it was an attempt, I think, to offer reassurance to the public that they are only spending their time looking at people who they suspect to genuinely have reason to suspect are terrorists. So he talked about um, things being uh, communications only being intercepted under legal warrants, even in the digital age. But then he comes back to this message that it's it's far harder actually now to intercept a, a text message or or, or a, a, an email or, or or an instant message on Facebook uh, because there's so much more traffic out there. And he says shifts in technology can and and do erode our capabilities. And it's really an appeal to say that they need to be able and allowed to be able to to, to carry on. Uh, using the new methods of communication to follow terrorists in the way they have in the past. Christopher, uh, what did you think of what the new Director-General of MI5 had to say? Anything surprising in what he said? Uh, no, it's not surprising what he, what he said, but he had to say it. It was the opportunity to say it, the first opportunity he's had since he, he got the gig in, uh, I think it was in April. Um, think about his last job. Um, his last job was Deputy Director. Deputy Director is responsible directly for counterterrorism which includes communications, which includes cyber, etc. When you're going after, especially at the moment, the Islamic radicals or the, or the suspected Islamic rab- radicals, look at the just look at the numbers. He's got something like around about two thousand people in the service. Some fewer than five hundred, maybe four eighty, four eighty-five, are actually directly agented to looking at the Islamic. Uh, fundamentalists, etc. These guys have to go home, they have to go have the weekend off, it takes about four men to to monitor one person. He's talking, therefore, about resources and the access to resources. And that is the most important thing. By the way, when he was talking about, you know, the surveillance and GCHQ, etc., and you can't necessarily, as Mike Clark was saying, look after, get into all the communications, but you can get into quite a lot. Um, and you have to change the regis- uh, legislation. 
I happen to know there was a certain amount of counter-conspiracy argument going on here. He was actually saying to a lot of these people out there who are radicals, actually, we are trying our best to monitor you, so beware. J- uh, James, yeah. th- these um, criticisms that have been made about, about by him about the kind of level of information that's come out from uh, Edward Snowden's revelations to the Garden, for example, um, what do you make of that exactly? Well, he didn't, he didn't name them. Um, but it, it, it seemed pretty obvious. Certainly, you look at the coverage, everybody thinks that is what it's about. And indeed, he, he, he opened by saying, our work is ever more subject to public debate and scrutiny, and I want to use this opportunity to open my contribution to those debates. So he was upfront about the fact. And there is, uh, you know, uh, it has undoubtedly raised questions. Re- Edward Snowden uh, revealed Operation Tempora, which is linked to the National Security Agency. In, and it effectively uh, said something about the scale and scope of, of of monitoring of digital communications. And, and has that was that useful? Is that useful to terrorists? What's come out? Do you think, or is that no, an exaggeration? Do you think? I, I th- uh, you know, we don't know, but it's a, it's a huge exaggeration because you quite often find that terrorist operations, especially the singletons in the operations, they're one-offs. No, for example, communications. What do I do if I want to make you a telephone call and I don't want to hear anybody know where it's come from? I buy a pair as you go. I make the call and then bin the, you know, throw it in the river or something like that. And this is what people are doing. It's that smart. It's that difficult Mm. to actually keep track of the individuals. And it's the individuals that he has a problem with. See, see, the the Deputy Prime Minister today, now the Liberal Democrats seem to be more on the sort of public, uh, seen as more on the the, the public liberties side of things. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, Nick Clegg said today that some of the technical secrets disclosed by Edward Snowden and the Guardian would be of immense interest to terrorists, but he said there is a legitimate debate to be had. I think there is one other point, though. At the same time as he's sort of criticising the release of information about their scale and scope, he is standing up and saying the idea that we can or would be able to monitor thousands of terrorist suspects is fanciful. James Hurst, thank you. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, who's who in the MOD's ministerial team? And you may be fit, but are you clean? The truth about those fitness supplements. The Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, has accused NATO forces of failing to bring stability to his country. Speaking to the BBC, he said the NATO campaign had brought no gains. BFBS reporter Tim Cooper joins us now from Camp Bastion. Hello, Tim. Remind us of what President Karzai said exactly. Hello there, Kate. Well, the whole interview covered the gambit of all the issues that are affecting Afghanistan right now. So, you know, the role of ISAF, the insurgency, uh, rights for women, future relations between America and uh, Afghanistan. But as you quite rightly said, it was the comments he made about NATO that have pricked up most ears here in Camp Bastion and indeed around the whole of ISAF, I should suspect. He told Newsnight the entire ISAF operation had been a lose-lose scenario for his country. The entire NATO exercise was one that uh, caused Afghanistan a lot of suffering and a lot of loss of life and no gains because the country is not secure. Uh, I'm not happy to say that, well, there is partial security. That's not what we are seeking. What we wanted was absolute security and a clear-cut war against terrorism. And Tim, there's been quite a lot of reaction to his comments, hasn't there? 
Yes, lots of reaction. People that you'd expect to react. People like Lord Danad, for example, saying that, well, look at where he's saying this and why he's saying it. We're coming up to an Afghan election. And I think that is a, a sensible point. His words here may not necessarily reflect what he feels about ISAF in the whole, but they probably are designed to play out to that Afghan election audience. Um, some ex-service uh, personnel have spoken to BFBS saying, look, we think this is a stupid thing to say. We're here for him. And if it hadn't been for us, then he probably, A, wouldn't be president now, and B, probably wouldn't even still be alive. And, uh, you know, re mixed reaction, as you would expect. And indeed, Philip Hammond talked to BFBS about President Karzai as well. I think um, there's a presidential election campaign um, underway in Afghanistan uh, and there are um, highly sensitive negotiations between Afghanistan and the United States which are at a critical point and I think um, you have to look at these comments in that context. The critically important thing for me is that we went into Afghanistan to protect the UK's national interest by destroying the bases from which terrorists were operating on the international stage. That has been successfully achieved. And, uh, Tim, what did President Karzai say about the future of the Taliban? Well, he was asked, are you talking to the Taliban yourself personally? Yes, you are, he replied. Is it your goal to bring them into some kind of power-sharing deal in Afghanistan? Absolutely, they are Afghans. So, very positive comments there about the future role of the Taliban in Afghanistan. He's talking to them. There is some talk about power sharing in the future, and I think this is, again, a sensible approach ahead of these forthcoming elections. And all this ahead of the start of Britain's last major military deployment to Afghanistan. Absolutely, yes. Just a few hours ago was the handover ceremony from Operation Herrick 18 to Op Herrick 19. I attended that. The flag was lowered of one mechanised brigade. The flag of 7th Armoured Division, the Desert's Rats, was raised on their 75th anniversary year. So, you know, a, a lot of troops, one wonders as you sort of saw them standing there parading, having heard these comments from Karzai. Look, he's supposed to be the person they're supporting. He's supposed to be the cause they're fighting for and developing a more stable Afghanistan for, if you like. One wonders how they feel about his comments where he says basically ISAF hasn't brought any gains. All right, Tim Cooper in Camp Bastion, thank you very much. Uh, Christopher, uh, on the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, uh, they've been talking to the BBC. Tell us a bit more about that. Hagi um, Mullah Masood, who is the head of Pakistan Taliban, he is probably the most wanted man in the world. He's got millions of dollars on his head from the Americans alone. He has been saying uh, we're willing to talk to the Pakistan government. And now, last week, uh, Nawaz Sharif, who was the Pakistan Prime Minister, who is in absolutely in the clag. I mean, Pakistan is almost a failed state. Uh, he said, we're willing to talk to uh, Taliban. So Taliban said, OK, we're willing to talk to you. Hmm. But we're going to lay down conditions. Now, that leaves the We'll negotiate the on our terms, state. basically. Yeah, well, most importantly, the terms we will negotiate on this becomes a uh, uh, it becomes an Islamic state, a pure Islamic state. Now, watch what happens in the future. Probably about ten days' time, and there's going to be a big speech in Islamabad from the chief of staff, the the Pakistan chief of staff. No way is he going to support Taliban talking to Sharif in these terms. So then people start twitching mm. because they can remember the military rule in Pakistan. And is Pakistan failing so much it might get to that? If it does, it makes it very difficult next year for when the elections in Afghanistan 
because Pakistan is one of the guarantors of peace in, in Afghanistan. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Um, let's look further closer to home right now because earlier this week David Cameron made some changes to the ministerial team at the Ministry of Defence as part of a wider cabinet reshuffle. Anna Soubry is the new Minister for Defence Personnel, Welfare and Veterans, while Marc Francois has become Armed Forces Minister. Meanwhile, over in the Shadow Cabinet, Jim Murphy is no longer Shadow Defence Minister. He's been replaced by Vernon Coker. The BBC's Rob Watson joins us. Hello, Rob. Uh, first of all, Hello. what can you tell us about Anna Soubry? Well, I think what her friends would say about Anna is that she's extremely feisty, that she's extremely bright. She's a mother of two. She's a former TV journalist. Oh, it's a good thing being a journalist. <laughs> uh, she's a former barrister. And I, I guess what her uh, perhaps people are less friendly towards Anna would say is that she often shoots from the hip, that she's quite outspoken. So that's Not a, a bad thing necessarily, absolutely. is it? Uh, mm. Well, certainly as a journalist, we, we love all that kind of thing. And, and a promotion for Marc Francois, although uh, what's this about perhaps the, the position of Armed Forces Minister being overlooked at first? Is there any truth in that? Well, I, I don't think so, really. I think it's a, a large department. There was a lot going on that day. I think that's probably a bit harsh. But yeah, on to Mark. Well, he's a I guess, if you don't mind me using the word, he's sort of foot soldier within the Conservative Party. He was a. Uh, he shoots from the, the hip as well, doesn't he? Uh, he? Well, he certainly does on some subject. He mm. feels very strongly about Europe. So he used to be in the Whip's office, uh, and apparently he, he was in the Territorial Army from 1985. Oh, he, yeah, I, I've been at events where he likes to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, in no, fact, absolutely. Mostly. <laughs> so he's a pretty feisty character as well. What do you know about Vernon Coker? Well, Vernon Coker is a very solid citizen within the, within the Labour Party. He's one of those sort of jovial people that you always look forward to bumping into in the, in the corridors of Westminster. I think the important things about him, though, to get away from uh, whether he's a nice bloke to have lunch with is to say that he's an hmm. Ed Miliband loyalist. He used to be uh, pretty loyal to Gordon Brown as well. And I, I don't think he's going to bring any startlingly new approach to uh, Labour's um, Labour on defence. In fact, I think, if anything, he'll be there to steady the ship and say, look, you know, we're, we're going to stick with renewing Trident. Christopher, um, Jim Murphy's move from shadow defence to international development. A demotion? I've always seen Jim Murphy as a sort of uh, a very raw-boned Scottish wee-free minister mm. uh, and uh, or parsimonious or, or, or almost. Uh, he certainly wasn't cutting it on the front bench uh, as far as Miliband was concerned. A lot of talk about Miliband saying, all right, we want to get rid of the last of the Blairites. I don't know there's much in that. He just wanted he wanted to change. He's supposed to be going to international development demotion. Smaller department, yes, but um, that department is extraordinarily important. It is one of the one of the uh, departments where the budget, for example, has not been tampered with. And if I were if I were someone like Jim Murphy, I thought if we get back into government, I might actually go on from here. Whereas if you think about defence. Then on the scale which I saw, Miliband's scale of which of the Im importance of which of, of the ministries, out of the 21 cabinet ministries or cabinet jobs, defence came about 17. Mm. Uh, um, but above it, three places above it, was international development. So don't... Don't, you know, don't feel don't feel the uh, the width too much. Rob Watson, uh, your your overall thoughts on these reshufflings in defence this week? Well, I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to say that I think they're far more to do with the politics of the of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, and it doesn't really apply to the Ministry of Defence uh, positions, the Liberal Democrat Party, than they are anything to do with uh, shifting policies 
uh, towards uh, the defence of our realm. I, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, that the key person has, has stayed in place as far as the government is concerned. But the rest of it, it's all about manoeuvring. So in the case of, of Anna Subri, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that the uh, Conservative Party wants to have a more female, more northern, a bit less posh, white, southern, middle-class boys face to it. Uh, and in the case of Labour, I, I pretty much agree with uh, I pretty much agree with Christopher. I mean, I, I think... Uh, uh, poor old Jim was seen as being a bit more of the of the old Blair school, and he, he'd said a few things that were a little bit disloyal about Ed Miliband over the summer not getting his act together. So, I think it's really to do with the, the party politics, dare I say it, and, and less less to do with fiddling about with the uh, defence of the realm. All right, Rob Watson, thank you very much for your time today. Cheers. This is BFBS Sit Rep. Soldiers in Germany are being encouraged to live a little more healthily. The Clean, Fit and Healthy campaign is about making sure servicemen and women are looking after themselves properly. And as BFBS reporter Will Inglis discovered in Paderborn, clean means no drugs. The Five Rifles Health Fair is an informal setting with stands set up around the gym here at Allenbrook Barracks, offering help and advice on all kinds of issues. There's all the usual stuff, stopping smoking advice, the dentist reminding people to brush properly. But there are military specific stalls too, injury prevention and hearing loss prevention. These soldiers told me it makes a real difference to get told about this stuff outside of a classroom environment. Within unit life, it's obviously, there's a lot of influences and things like that, so I think it's good for them to be able to ask questions and um, get the right answers. Not everyone will go to the, to the med centre if they've got a problem, whereas it's easier to talk about it here to someone who's right face to face. The Clean, Fit and Healthy campaign is being driven by one UK armoured division. GOC Major General James Chiswell told me why. Well, at the core of our, um, of our strength um, sits our soldiers. Um, and with good people, you can achieve anything. But if you're going to do that, the base metal, um, the fundamentals have got to be right. Um, and the key message for me within this division is we need to be clean of drugs uh, and we need to be fit and we need to be healthy. And a day like today is just really helpful to reinforce this message. And being clean of drugs doesn't just mean the obvious tips like don't take cocaine. They're also talking about banned substances that are routinely found in bodybuilding supplements. Lindsay Smith from drug education firm Galahad SMS is here to draw attention to the risks under compulsory drug testing or CDT. The failure rates into three key areas. Uh, our first key area is why CDT was set up which is our unlawful substances. Why people can't use things such as cannabis, why they can't use things such as cocaine and the issues around those physically, mentally, socially and lawful aspects with them. Then we're looking at the other area which is things like protein shakes and steroids why they can't be used and why somebody can fail on something as simple as a protein shake and get them to understand the approved lists of protein shakes that can be used. And then the third area is things such as prescription medicines, which a lot of people don't think about. I think the doctor's given a prescription, that's a legally binding document. They're still using that prescription after they get a prescription, then that's unlawful possession, it's unlawful use, it's also a CDT failure. And being caught out just trying to bulk up with protein shakes is not something the command is going to cut any slack for. If you take the Queen's shilling, the contract is that you stay off Ill illegal substances. Um, and and if, you, if you break that contract, then, then you'll be moved on. Uh, moreover, we will search you out and move you on. Uh, and you'll move on in a disadvantaged position in that you won't go off in, into civilian life with a military recommendation for what you have done. The bottom line is that you can only be sure a supplement is safe if it's been batch-tested by informed-sport.com. 
If it's on their list and you buy it from a reputable retailer, you should be okay. But if you buy online for a fraction of the retail price, even if it looks legit, it probably isn't and could end your career. That was Will English reporting there from Paderborn. Uh, Christopher, before we go this week, it's time to reveal your six-pack, your six things to look at this week and next week included. Okay. okay. <laughs> Syria. Um, Syria. Um, need more inspectors to get those uh, CW crushers. They've got to get rid of the delivery Chemical systems. Weapons. Well, the delivery systems first, because you haven't got any delivery systems, you can't deliver the, uh, the weapons. But this is going to go on until the end of next year. Egypt. Morsi, uh, being pushed out, pushed out obviously as president of Egypt, he's going on trial next month. I think probably about, I think it's the fourth they're supposed to start the trial. So watch out for more demos. Watch out for more CS gas. Watch out for more disruption in China, in in, in, in Egypt. Pakistan, which we did touch on earlier. Well, Pakistan very important because Hakim Hollad Massoud. Uh, the Taliban leader who says he's willing to talk, uh, but we want an Islamic state, and we also want to kill off any American that comes our way. Watch for those drones that often circle over his camp. Watch for one of them to go live. And I think there we can start to expect to see a couple of more uh, attacks on, on vehicles, probably carrying his people, if not him. Turkey. Turkey, they're going to buy Chinese missiles or Chinese missile pieces. Now, really? T- yeah. Now, Turkey is a member of NATO. Now, if that was the UK or France or Germany or Belgium, uh, there'd be all sorts of questions asked. And the British are actually going to start asking for questions from Turkey. What happens, for example, if we go to war and China says you can't have your missiles? Ed Snowden. Ed Snowden. Now, Ed Snowden's in Moscow. His dad's arriving in Moscow later this evening. Mm. Can you imagine it? I just want to be there. When what his they dad, say. When his dad goes in and says, no, Edward, well, how you ever do it in, in American. Listen, <laughs> Edward, what that are you up to? And how? But don't worry, the president's going to help you to get out of here. And there's going to be a silence. The president's going to help me? Oh, forget it. He can't even control Congress. <laughs> Very quickly, Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner 2. I reckon Blade Runner 2 is going to come up. Harrison Ford wants the gig to, re- to, to, to do his old role, to get, role again. I'm told by the director, no way, no way. Christopher, thank you. That's all we have time for this week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Goodbye. Sports, sports and music. music.